Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, September 22nd, 2011. Wait a second, it's 2211. Oh man, I need to check with the third eagle of the apocalypse to find out what the prophetic meaning of all of this is. I'm completely clueless when it comes to prophetic numerology. I guess maybe that's a good thing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the discernment work, compare what people are saying, saying if seeing if that's really God's word being rightly handled, rightly divided, or if it's just God's word being twisted, mangled, and making it say things that it really doesn't say. <clears throat> now, part of the thing we do here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, once a week we have a light edition of the program, and the purpose of the light edition is for you to get a more in-depth lecture from people who know what they're talking about, not me. I mean, I obviously have no clue what I'm doing. But, uh, and plus today I spent <laughs> part of my day reconstructing a bookshelf of mine that completely collapsed under the weight of having, uh, you know, two deep books uh, put on. I, did, I didn't realize that it would not survive for the long term if I stacked my books too deep. Anyways, <laughs> but uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to begin a series uh, uh, by my mentor, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, where uh, he's doing a series of lectures on Martin Luther's commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians. And so this is fascinating. Dr. Rosenblatt is um, colorful. <laughs> I just love listening to his lectures. And uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians is a classic. That's just about the best I can put it. And uh, so without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt in uh, lesson number one on uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. Here we go. Very quickly, background material. Um, Dave Atkinson approached me uh, about a module, a course here at Faith, and suggested the book of Galatians, Luther's commentary. And I said, well, yeah, for that, why don't you invite uh, Dr. Middendorf from the college or Dr. Brighton 
Uh, they're in that exegetical uh, department. And Dave answered, because they're not here and you are. <laughs> so I don't want to pretend I'm something I'm not. In answer to him, I said, well, I can't do what they do, but perhaps we could tackle it as we would a great book of the Western world. And Dave said, I think people would uh, appreciate that or come to that. So that's the prep that's in the background here. Luther's greater commentary, that means in the sense of larger. He did it more than once. Luther's greater commentary on St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. I used the standard American edition, you know, Luther's works. You might have seen them on a shelf. The standard, what's called American edition, volume 26. And in it, Luther covers chapters 1 through 4 with a prologue we'll look at today. Then, in volume 27, he does chapters 5 and 6. Now, I worked this summer in Portland six days a week, 8 to 10 hours a day on this. And to finish volume 26 took me from when I arrived in Portland after last spring's graduation until I got in the car to drive back for faculty retreat. The remaining material, chapters 5 and 6 in volume 27, maybe we could do later on um, to finish it off. But there's this advantage. Luther says himself, we have now covered the doctrinal core of the letter, volume 26. Uh, So you can, in your ed department, uh, committee, discuss that. But Luther himself says, we have now covered the doctrinal core of what's in the epistle. Uh, at the end of four. Um, so what we'll be doing here, what I'll be doing and what you'll be doing, is not very high-flying, but kind of prosaic. Huh? Uh, if, the work, if the work were by Aristotle, we'd be doing the same sort of thing, an, exa- an examination of the content of a great work, Maybe to whet your appetite, to own it or look at it or put it on your Kindle or whatever. I have no idea. Uh, We will be under time constraint of eight Sundays, the committee tells me. And what I will pass out to you, um, let me explain. I've put some things in there that are standard conservative intros to the book for your edification. Um, Romans and Galatians happen to be two of the Pauline writings that the snotty critics have to admit that Paul wrote. But you can, uh, you can uh, take a look at some of that background material. The, the New Bible Commentary is standard conservative scholarship uh, you've got it, but we're not going to spend time on it, but you'll have it. It never occurs to the critics to question their methods, no matter what. Um, but anyway, in, in this particular book, it's one that they've said, well, Paul probably wrote it, but who cares? Um, so, uh, with the time constraints, that. 
One that you might not think of, but I think is worth consideration, at least for a particular kind of man or woman, is the devotional use of what I've passed out to you. I'll tell you just one short story, and it might ring a bell with some of you. When C.S. Lewis was converted to Christ late in life, he was told by Christians that he ought to read devotional books, that they would, his, soar, his soul would soar if it, he'd read these little things. And new to the faith, Lewis said, these people know things more than I and better than I, I'll do it. But it never worked for him. The pablum you get, you know, one page sitting on the back of the toilet. Um, but, said Lewis, as I started reading the Christian greats, Augustine and Luther and others, he said the blessing that they said I'd get from reading the devotional works actually came as I dived into the hardheads who were doing hard theology. Hmm. So don't split between scholarly and slash yicky devotional. Huh? That's an artificial split. You might find that in in really working on some of the stuff that uh, I'm passing out to you, that, uh, that it'll be... It'll go in, in a way, through a door you hadn't expected or wasn't guarded and go in well and blessedly. Now, as usual, I've done outlines of all of the material. I have used outlining software. On the Mac side, the uh, top program is Opal, like the gem. And on the PC side, the great outlining program is called NoteMap, and it's marketed to lawyers. It's $150. Um, The advantage of using outlining software is that you can do what's called hoisting. Now, that's just a software term for making the details disappear. You could never do that with a word processor without all kinds of work deleting. But with outlining software, you can make details disappear and then print it with the details not in the print that comes out. And that's what I'm going to pass out to you. It'll be sort of skeletal. Um, Then, if you want the whole caboodle, I've passed it already to my son, Ted, at NRP, I don't deal with uh, pricing, but he'll probably put it up there as a freebie. I don't know. I don't ask about that stuff. But what I did there was to export the whole outline to PDF, which is universal and will open the way it should, and it'll behave itself. Um, But it's lengthy. I'm not going to duplicate all that paper for all of you here, but it isn't as if it won't be available to to you in toto if you want it. Um, I started, as I said, working on this when I arrived in Portland soon after graduation and didn't stop until I got in the car to come south for the opening of the new academic year. 
Um, so um, we will not even in class go over all of that. It's too massive. It's just too massive. So I will hit the high points. I think I can safely guarantee to you that as you work through what I've done, you are in genuine contact, not just with the thought, but I used his very words and put them into outline form. Now, what's the advantage of an outline uh, as opposed to the full prose text? In the American edition, there are no editor's divisions of the text. It's just continuous text. So what an outline enables you to do is to stay left if you want to and ignore the details or move in whenever you want to. You can't do that with straight page-after-page prose. I've used the translation that's in the American edition, and it is probably not the same as any English translation that you could buy at a Christian bookstore if they still sell books. I don't know. But if they still sell some books instead of Jesus junk, you probably couldn't buy this particular translation. And the, the explanation for that is really simple. That is, these fellows from a prior generation in old Lutheranism had a facility with language that they could confidently do the translating themselves if they wanted to. So I retain that uh, as we go through uh, I, I can't put ESV, RSV to it or anything. They had the ability to do that in the Hebrew and the Greek beyond what the later generation was able. So that'll be there for you. Okay? Um, any other opening things? I think that'll do it. What I've given to you today in the outline, is the preface. We'll just go through the preface today, and this is almost full outline, full form. Following this, this coming week, I'm going to try what I'm not sure I can accomplish, but I'm going to try. I lifted and gave to you a nice, clean outline of the book itself from a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary. It's a good outline, best I could find in detail. And after the preface, you'll notice if you look at that outline, I forget the fellow's name, but if you look at that outline, the first major one has to do with Paul's defense of his apostleship, his apostolic status. And I'm going to try to take the material from Luther's commentary and put it into that guy's three points that he's got under the defense, Paul's defense of his apostolic office. I don't know if I'm going to succeed, but I'm going to try. It's just the arrangement of material. And if you get the full outline, you'll have it anyway before I tried to do that with it. But it's just for pedagogical purposes, no more. I'll probably fail at doing this, and it's going to take two sessions for us rather than one. That will leave us, let's see, that's eight minus three. That'll leave us five sessions to cover 
three through four, a part of two, and that I think we can do in the eight weeks assigned, I think. Um, So that's the overall intent. That's the background to this. Um, One overall remark that also I probably should make. Luther loved this book, and he loved it for a particular reason. Uh, He knew that it was uh, what it later came to be called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Um, And he called it his Katie von Bora. And there were reasons for that. The major reason we will discover inductively over and over and over and over and over again. What is that? Luther believed that this letter had one gigantic, explosive purpose in every sing, almost every single verse. And we'll find it again and again and again and again. So, for the student, the advantage is we're not going to have to cover 17.35 points in this epistle. There's going to be one and he's going to go at it from 360 degrees of the compass, and he, he believes that he's doing faithfully what he finds in the text of Paul. In other words, he doesn't believe that he's put something down on the book. He believes that in verse after verse after verse after verse, it's coming up out of the book to him, and he's going to try and convince us of that. Okay? What is that point? Might be well to say. That point is going to be that the death of Christ saves. To deny it is to deny the gospel, to deny the rescue, and condemn yourself. And to add to it something is to deny it. If I were a Roman Catholic, this is the book that would keep me awake nights. It would keep me awake. And in a certain sense, American evangelical too. But at least we have a singular point through almost the whole letter. Fair enough? All right, I'm going to go a little bit to chapter 1 and what he calls the occasion for the letter, and then we're going to try and do the preface. Fair enough? The occasion for it. Paul had planted the pure doctrine of the gospel of the righteousness of faith among the Galatians, but immediately after his departure, false teachers crept in and attempted to subvert what Paul had taught. Says Luther, the devil can do, can do none otherwise than attack this gospel, this righteousness of faith, and vehemently. Uh, the same sort of thing happens to us because Luther says we preach the gospel purely and for that suffer all sorts of evils from the right and from the left. The gospel teaches something more sublime, far more sublime than the wisdom of the world or the righteousness of the world, or the religions of the world. The world wants to abolish sin, to be delivered from death, and to merit eternal life. But this the gospel condemns. 
and the world cannot bear the condemnation of that which it regards as its best, so it charges the gospel with being seditious and erroneous, that it subverts commonwealths and kingdoms and empires and religions, that the gospel sins against both God and Caesar. And so those who teach the gospel will be persecuted as if they were the world's greatest plague. What does the gospel preached accomplish? Well, Luther says the devil is overthrown, his kingdom is cast down, it tears from his hands the law, sin, and death, the tyrants by which he holds us captive, the whole race. His prisoners are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and liberty. So why would we not expect that he will use all his wiles and power to obscure, corrupt, and eradicate this preaching of righteousness by faith alone? And then he talks about his own day in the 16th century uh, and the uh, attacks on it by both Rome and the fanatics, more than by kings or princes. But still our unity at Little Wittenberg remains because we continue in this doctrine of righteousness by faith alone, never stopping stressing it. Uh, What did the false apostles boast or claim or argue? They boasted that they were of the seed of Abraham and that they were, unlike Paul, actual pupils of the original disciples, the apostles. They may even, says Luther, have performed some miracles. Who knows? Men who claim authority like that can fool even those who are educated, even those who are quite steadfast in the Christian faith. The Judaizers asked, have you ever thought about who this Paul is? Anyway, he was the last one converted, a latecomer. He's inferior to us. We were all pupils of the apostles, knew them very well, saw Christ in person, heard him preach. Paul didn't. And they argued, remember, Paul persecuted the church, killed Christians. And finally, one you'll recognize, we are many, but Paul is only one. You imagine on account of Paul alone, God would permit so many churches to be deceived And again, Luther compares it to uh, when the Pope doesn't have the scripture on his side, he always uses the same argument. The church, the church, the church. And you imagine that God would leave his church in error for so many centuries that for a few heretical Lutherans, he'll reject his whole church. Luther says this argument persuades many. So the arguments impressed the Galatians. They began to doubt Paul's authority and began, more importantly, to doubt the chief doctrine of Christianity. This epistle is Paul's response. Against the Judaizers, Paul boldly sets forth his apostolic authority, that's where we're going to do next Sunday and maybe the Sunday following, his calling and his ministry. He refuses to yield to anyone, even to the other apostles. He cites how at Antioch he withstood even Peter, the prince of the apostles, the very pillar, face to face. Says Luther, the first two chapters do almost nothing else but set forth his calling, ministry, and his gospel. He affirms it's not from men. He received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. We'll go into the psychiatry of that if we can. And he says that 
if he or even an angel brings another gospel, he wants the curse of God to fall on whoever does it, himself, an angel, or anybody else, to fall on them immediately and burn them. Anathema is the word. Let the curse fall. All right, so now let's look at Luther's prologue. That, this you should have on paper. should say preface on the second line. The argument. We begin with the issue with which Paul wants to deal in his letter. He wants to establish the doctrine of Christian righteousness. And before we imagine that we know that that all has to do with sanctification, uh, which it doesn't, um, let's see what he has to say. That is, the righteousness of faith, of grace, of the forgiveness of sins. Why? So that we may know the difference between Christian righteousness and all other kinds of it. There's your key to the book. And Luther says later, this is our theology. Righteousness is of many kinds. Political, you can read the details. Ceremonial, you can read the details. Righteousness of the law, you can read the details. And then, D, the righteousness of faith or Christian righteousness. Says Luther, it's over and above all those other kinds. It is to be distinguished most carefully from all the others. They are actually contrary to it. How so? Well, the other kinds of righteousness proceed from the laws of emperors, traditions of the Pope, commandments of God. Second, they consist in our works which can be achieved by us either by purely natural endowments that somehow survive the fall or from a special gift of God, that's the scholastics. Uh, And Luther says, Actually, all of these are gifts from heaven, and we're just refusing to admit that they are. The righteousness of faith, in contrast to these other kinds of righteousness, is a righteousness imputed to us or reckoned to our account through Christ and without works. It's not political, it's not ceremonial, it's not legal in one sense. It is certainly not work righteousness. It's the opposite of that stuff. In it, we are purely passive, says Luther. Not active. We work nothing. We merely receive. And even the receiving is given to us. We permit someone else to work in us or to give us Christ. Um, I don't know about the German, but in the English language, you have one where Luther says, we allow God to have his way with us. That is to give us Christ. When we are trying to do all these other kinds of righteousness, he's going to try to give us Christ freely, and we're going to resist it. So, Says Luther, it's appropriate to call the righteousness of faith a passive righteousness. Okay? 
Then Roman numeral two, how things go when we're in terrors of conscience or danger of death. Such is our human weakness and misery that in terrors of conscience and in danger of death, we look at nothing except our own works, our worthiness, and the law. The law shows us our sin. Our past life comes immediately to mind. We groan and say, oh, I really lived damnably. If only I could live longer, I'd amend my life. Luther says this is what we do, given some pressure. Human reason can't stop it from looking at this active righteousness, my own righteousness. All that nonsense about uh, at the gate and the Peter and the balance pan. It's all we do, says Luther, and hope that we've got enough on the one side to outbalance the other. And he thinks it's all rot. And, and Satan's chief lie. Then Satan increases and aggravate, aggravates these thoughts in us, in us. It is impossible for the mind of itself to conceive of any comfort, uh, to look at, for grace, to reject discussion of works. We fail, especially under pressure. It's beyond us to find a gracious God when it's under pressure like this. Uh, it's even beyond the law, and particularly beyond the law. The law cannot bring peace to a terrified conscience. It makes it even sadder and drives it to despair, and Luther thinks that's what the Bible tells us it does. Romans 7. Therefore, the afflicted conscience has no remedy against despair, even eternal death, except to take hold of the promise of grace offered in Christ. This righteousness of faith, or this passive righteousness, or this Christian righteousness. <clears throat> the righteousness of Christ, which we do not perform, but receive. We do not have, but accept. And which God grants to us freely through Jesus Christ and his cross and death. Teaching Christians to ignore the law. Woo! But he, you'll, see, you'll see what he means. Everybody goes, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Luther was not an antinomian, but let's see what he has to say here. Uses the analogy of the earth and rain. That is, the earth can't produce rain. It's unable to acquire it. Uh, rather, it receives it as a gift from above. And so this heavenly righteousness is given to us by God without our work, without our merit. Okay? We obtain it only through the free imputation or reckoning and as the indescribable gift of God. Therefore, the highest art and wisdom of Christians is not to know the law, but to ignore works and to ignore all active righteousness. Now, how more antinomian could you get? Luther is talking about, if you imagine it in columns, column A. How am I saved? And he's allowing nothing to come over from column B. My thought, word, deed, any of it. He's saying in matters of Dying in matters of being oppressed by guilt and all of that. We are not to allow the law beyond 
its sphere. He'll say a little more about this in a moment, about the flesh, but not into the doctrine of justification. Not a whit. Nothing. Okay? So the highest art and wisdom of Christians is not to know the law, but to ignore it. And he means with regard to, am I going to get in? Okay? Just as outside the people of God, the highest wisdom is to know and study the law, works, and active righteousness. Here, it is a marvelous thing and unknown to the world to teach Christians to ignore the law and to live before God as though there were no law whatever. Now, he doesn't mean your daily life and how you behave. He means not letting it in to take away the comfort that's been given to you in Christ, even though the law is in the Bible. You imagine teaching this in an evangelical sphere? Aha, I knew he was that. So, there are two words in the Bible, the word of the law and the word of the gospel, and they must be divided. On rightly dividing for these two words of God, it calls for a wise and a faithful father who can moderate the law in such a way it stays within its limits. Were I to teach men the law in such a way that they suppose uh, themselves to be justified by it, I'd be going beyond the limits of the law, confusing the two righteousnesses, the active and the passive. If I go beyond the flesh or the old man, the law and works are all joined together. But in the new man... Um, the spirit or new man, they're joined to the promise and to grace. That you might have, have any, any of you run into uh, CFW Walters on the proper distinction between law and gospel? Here's the background, a lot of it in Luther in Galatians. If a man, if I see a man is contrite, oppressed by the law, terrified by sin, thirsting for comfort, it's time for me to take the law and all active righteousness out of his sight. And to set before him through the gospel the saving passive righteousness, which excludes Moses and excludes the law. Show him the promise of Christ who came for the afflicted and for sinners. No longer under law, but under grace. Now, this, of course, limiting the law this way is a lot of what Luther had to do in what he was teaching, and he thought he was on solid textual ground to do it. Five, over on the next page, this is our theology. By it, we teach a precise distinction between these two kinds of righteousness, the active and the passive. Um, Both are necessary, but both must be kept within their limits. Christian righteousness applies to the new man. The righteousness of the law applies to the old. Upon the old man, as upon an ass, a burden must be put that will oppress him. He must not enjoy the freedom of the Spirit or of grace until he is first put on the new man by faith in Christ. And it will never fully happen in this life, but he's not talking perfection. He's talking about, am I going to look to my virtue at the end? Or am I going to look to just Christ? Am I going to believe that 
that uh, somehow I've uh, added to what Christ's cross has done, or am I going to turn away from it and toward what Christ has done for me? He has to add something like this. I say this in order that no one may suppose that we reject or prohibit good works, as the papists falsely accuse us. He's just talking about the doctrine of justification. So, we set forth, as it were, two worlds, one heavenly, the other earthly. And into these we place two kinds of righteousness which are distinct, separate from each other. The righteousness of the law, earthly, dealing with earthly things. By it we perform good works, again the analogy. And Christian righteousness, which has no merit to it, no work of our own. We are rather justified by this freely. It has nothing to do with the law or with our active righteousness. Um, We don't even have it of ourselves. It's a gift and we receive it from heaven. Okay, you're going to find a lot of repetition here. He's going to hammer this over and over and over. Question. Then do we do nothing, work nothing in order to obtain this righteousness? Luther, I reply, nothing at all. Nothing at all. For this righteousness means to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing about the law or about works. It is to know and believe only this, that Christ has gone to the Father, that he sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father, not as judge, but as one who has come, who has been made for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1. In short, he's our high priest, interceding for us, reigning over us, and in us, reigning by grace. Odd use of language, reigning by grace. Here, no one, one notices no sin, feels no terror or remorse of conscience. Now, he's not a perfectionist. He knows that he himself at his deathbed will have somebody tell him, Christ's death will get you in, Luther just like the rest of us. But this is, this is what it should do when all that ethics is removed or all that demand is removed and is replaced with Christ. Remember the old 1953 Luther movie, the black and white one? If you don't have it, get it. You can get it cheap. The people behind the cameras were not Hollywood people on that. They were all historians. Odd way to make a movie. Uh, it was Roland Bainton and Grimm and Spitz. They were all intellectuals, uh, professors of Reformation history from various un- universities in the United States. The high point of that 53 movie is not Luther's confession at Worms. Uh, here I stand, I can do no other. The high point of the film, the uh, writers and the directors said, came much earlier in the monastery. When I think it was Staupitz said to him, Uh, when Luther wasn't bending the knee to all the trinkets that were, the new trinkets that were being brought in. um, And Luther just sort of stood aside and wasn't doing reverence to them. And uh, later Schaupitz said to him, but Luther, if you take these things away from the people, what are you going to replace it with? And he looked at him and said, Christ, Father, I'm going to replace them all with Christ. 
That was the key line in the movie. Christ, Father, I'm going to replace all of them with Christ. Okay. So, um, we set forth, as it were, two worlds, one heavenly, the other earthly. And in we place two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness of law uh, versus Christian righteousness. And when asked, then do we do nothing? He answers, nothing at all. Um, It is just to believe who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. Um, Is there any conscience or fear present? If there's any conscience or fear present... It's a sign that this righteousness has been withdrawn or has become cloudy to us, lost sight of, that Christ is out of our sight or hidden. But where Christ is truly seen, there must be full and perfect joy in the Lord and peace of heart. The heart declares, although I'm a sinner according to the law, judged by the righteousness of the law, nevertheless, I do not despair. I do not die because Christ lives, who is my righteousness and my eternal and heavenly life. In that righteousness and life, I have no sin, conscience, or death. I am indeed a sinner according to the present life and its righteousness as the son of Adam. Where the law accuses me, death reigns and devours me, but... Above this life, I have another righteousness, another life, which is Christ, the Son of God, who does not know sin and death, but is righteousness and eternal life. For his sake, this body of mine will be raised from the dead and delivered from the slavery of the law and sin and will be sanctified together with the Spirit. Huh? Amen. Yeah. So, within their own spheres is a necessity. D of that section. What Paul is concerned to accomplish in this epistle. He is concerned to instruct, comfort, and sustain us in a perfect knowledge of this most excellent Christian righteousness. Luther, quote, for the doctrine of justification is lost. If the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. That's worth thinking about. Those who in the world who do not teach it are either Jews or Turks or Papists or sectarians. He doesn't care. All of me thought we're in the world of self-justifying active righteousness, and it's a denial of the gospel. Between these two kinds of righteousness, the active righteousness of the law and the passive righteousness of Christ, there is no middle ground. There's always somebody in the room that says, couldn't we sort of blend them? Always. If we were really smart, couldn't we just sort of put these two together? And and Luther's answer is, "Uh uh-uh. It's like trying to mix fire and water to get fire water. (laughs) (laughs) He who has strayed away from this passive Christian righteousness will necessarily relapse into the active righteousness. Hmm? That is, when he's lost sight of Christ, he must fall into a trust in his own works. You can do the section on the fanatical spirits, um, sectarians, you might have heard us say on the White Horse Inn, Schwermerei, that's the German, swarmers, like bees. Uh, These were uh, terms of of abuse that the reformers used against what amounted to not Baptists, but Pentecostals. The 16th century Anabaptists, Munzer and the rest, I think are closer to our Pentecostal where you get continuous revelation from heaven. 
I think that's fair to say. You can do that on your own. Therefore, we always repeat, urge, and inculcate this doctrine of faith or Christian righteousness. Hmm? It's continuous use, uh, always distinguishing between the two. Top of seven, otherwise we shall not be able to observe true theology, shall immediately all become lawyers, ceremonialists, legalists, and papists. Christ will be so darkened that no one in the church will be correctly taught or comforted. If we want our preachers and teachers of others, uh, we must uh, urge them to take great care in these issues and to hold this distinction between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of Christ. And again, he says it's easy to speak of, but boy, in experience and under pressure and face of death, it'll disappear from our sight in a minute. And in the hour of death or those kinds of conflicts, whoosh, it, we start talking again, just like the dog returning to its own vomit about our virtues and how well we've tried and I did my best and it's all hogwash. In justification, it's hogwash. Uh, we didn't do our best. We didn't try our All of that goes. Therefore, I admonish you, primarily pastors and teachers, instructors of consciences, exercise yourselves by study, reading, meditation, and prayer so that in temptation you'll be able to instruct consciences, both your own and others. Console them. Take them from law to grace from active righteousness to passive righteousness, in short, from Moses to Christ. How the devil uh, afflicts us here, frightens us with the law. He brings up passages in the four Gospels in which Christ himself requires works of us. And they're there. Plain words. Threatens damnation. Says Luther, if here we cannot distinguish between the two kinds of righteousnesses, if, we do, if here by faith we do not take hold of Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of God and is our righteousness and life and is interceding for us miserable sinners, then we will fall again under the law and Christ is no longer a savior to us but a judge. Then he's a lawgiver again and there's no salvation left and sure despair follows an eternal death. So, Let us learn diligently this art of distinguishing between these two kinds of righteousnesses in order that we may know how far we should obey the law and in what sense. (coughs) I said above, the Christian in a Christian, the law must not exceed its limits. Pardon me. Must stay within its limits, its dominion over the flesh. Um, But if the law tries to ascend into our conscience and exert its rule there, see to it that you are a good dialectician and that you make the correct distinction. Give no more to the law than it has coming. And then uh, similarly what I read earlier, what you're to say to it. And then what that brings. When I have or stand with the righteousness of somebody else and don't claim any of my own, says Luther, then is where the pastor's on track with sheep, the teacher's on track with his students, 
and we are, by the gospel again, delivered from fret, worry, sweaty palms, sleepless nights, and all of that. Um, I try to tell when I'm beyond Lutheran circles, tell people, find a church where that's told to you, this kind of righteousness, and that it stands against all others, and where the pastor is telling you this is the chief and saving righteousness, uh, even up against those who will teach that they want to add the law to it, to it or especially those who would add the law to it, uh, find where you get a better diet than that. Huh? Luther knew that we need this, and he was right. And so, so far the argument of the epistle which Paul sets forth because of the false teachers who had obscured this righteousness of faith amongst the Galatians. Against them, he asserts his authority and office, and that will start next time. Now, am I within the borders of what we're allowed here? Is that within the time? I'm not really well, so that I'm not conscious of the clock. I apologize. Is that all right? Okay. Do we have time for questions, or is that what you do? I was curious about the translation that you were referring to. I mean, is it something that we can obtain? Well, in this course, you'll get their translation. It's bolded. Verse 2, and there's the text in their translation. Verse 4, bolded. And And I took that bolding. And I took their very rendering of the text. It, it just seemed to me, I trust their scholarship. Um, but it's not put together like a... No. Okay. No. I was just curious. No. I, thought, I mean, I would But, love you know, a, a note of comfort here. The manuscript tradition for the Greek New Testament is so deep, so broad, that if somebody tells you that they're going to come out with some phenomenal new translation... Take it cum granum saltum. Hmm? The reason they're all so similar is the Greek text is so well... uh, I mean, even snotty theological liberals who don't believe a word of it acknowledge that the textual tradition is so deep, so ancient, so broad, that uh, with 96 plus percent of the Greek New Testament text... You're sort of insane to doubt it. I mean, ask a classicist. Invite a classicist over. They are just, they think theologians are screwballs, and a lot of us are. (laughs) But the, the ones they can't figure out are the liberal ones. Because in their field, they're operating with scraps or manuscripts that are 400 years after the claimed author lived, sometimes a thousand years afterwards, and they cannot figure out why liberal Protestant theologians have so many doubts about the Greek text of the New Testament when we've got, by a factor, more than they've got almost anywhere. And they just think, are you guys screwballs? Wish we had one one-hundredth of what you have of a, a sure text. 
Uh, Frederick C. Kenyon, of the, uh, the chief librarian of the British Museum, said one time back as early as the 40s, we must uh, view the Greek New Testament text as finally and firmly established. Uh, yeah, there's the end of Mark and uh, about four or five other little uh, paragraphs and so forth, but it's minuscule compared to the full text of the Greek New Testament. It's, it's a small portion. Um, anyway, digression, but... Yeah. Um, when you say uh, add to Scripture, or um, what was the line? What do you mean by that? We're going to do that for the rest of this course, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll see how it was done by the false teachers in Galatia, and Luther is going to eviscerate it line by bloody line. And he believes that he's doing it on the basis of what Paul's writing, not just commenting uh, far removed from the text, but he really believes that he's, fine, he's going to kind of try and convince us, I'm just giving you what he just wrote here, and here's what they were doing in some detail. Remember that in Galatians, you know this, but let me just remind you, almost every letter Paul wrote has a standard, wonderful first century preface and introduction. Almost every letter, even to Corinth, were guys who were sleeping with their mothers-in-law. And he addresses them as the saints of God, you know, as in, not out. Except for Galatians. The preface to Galatians is roughly, you idiots who seduced you away from the gospel. That's my translation. <laughs> but it's singular. it's singular in that. In other words, Paul got explosively angry over what was going on in Galatia, which had to do with false doctrine. And with Galatia, he dealt with it sort of, well, I, this and that and the other and uh, so forth, but not in Galatians. And we're just the opposite, you know? We get all exercised over some sexual whatever with some pastor or some... Whatever, and boy, do we get exercised about that. But it doesn't bother us if most of American evangelicalism is teaching a Roman Catholic work righteousness, but just doesn't know any Latin. That doesn't bother us much. Huh? It's so happy. It's so happy. Huh? Luther's a long way from that. And he was convinced so was St. Paul. He wrote to Leo one time, Pope. He said, Leo, I know there have been a lot of reformers. A lot of them. But most all of them moral. But you're going to remember my name till the day you die. Because I'm not a moral reformer. I'm going down to where the trouble begins. Down to the taproot. Root meaning a radical. I'm going down to the tap root where the trouble is. It's in the doctrine. It's in the doctrine. And you'll never forget my name. He knew the difference between, you know, let's close all the liquor stores in Irvine <laughs> and the preaching of self righteousness. 
and he was convinced he was with Paul on it, and right together with him. Um, and would that in our age, those of us, you know, in, in our stream, would be not known for gathering together votes to shut down every bar in Irvine. No. Huh? Do what you're doing and what we're doing here at Faith Capo in every way we can to set Christ into the middle of a suffocating works righteousness. Hmm? I don't know how you do that in Irvine. We don't have cemeteries there, of course. Um, The planned community. All right. Thanks for your attention. Excellent lecture, and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of these. Wow, great stuff. So, what'd you think? Um, you know, Dr. Rosenblatt's my mentor. It's tough for me uh, watching the video on this because, <sighs> oh man, he's getting he's getting old. And then I look in the mirror and I realize, ah, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh man. Anyway. Um, so if you'd like to send me your feedback regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.